Amen. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. It's good to see everyone this morning. Matthew chapter 9. Hold your place there and let me simply read to you a passage in the book of Lamentations chapter 3. Beginning in verse 22, it is of Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Matthew chapter 9. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labors into his harvest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you already for enabling us to sing praise with understanding. Lord, we thank you for these great hymns of the faith. We thank you for the Psalms that speak and proclaim the wonderful mercies of our God upon wretched sinners such as ourselves. My Father, I pray that you would be pleased to meet with us this morning in a special way. Lord, I pray that someone here this morning that's listening to this message, that, Lord, you'd open up their eyes that they might see their great need of Christ. And that in spite of all their wretchedness and sin and iniquities, Lord, you show compassion in giving yourself as a sacrifice to alleviate us from the sufferings of sin and its punishment. Father, I pray that you'd also remind the child of God, Lord, of your great compassion. And Lord, I pray that we would take that great compassion you've shown us and carry it to a world that's lost and dying. Lord, that we might see the multitudes as you did that day so many years ago. And that, Lord, with zeal and love and fervency, Lord, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, beseeching sinners to be reconciled to God. Oh, my Father, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Beloved, as I mused upon these verses of Scripture this past week, I became overwhelmingly conscious of what little I truly know of Christ and his glorious person. It seems the more I learn, the less I know. The more I believe to be enlightened by his grace, the more I become aware of the great darkness which still clouds my very limited understanding 
of the glory and majesty of Christ. I'm overwhelmed not only by that thought, but overwhelmed that there are so many who profess to know Christ and yet show so little love and compassion for Him. They give no effort in reading Scripture or praying, no effort in coming to church to hear His glorious Word preached, to hear Him exalted. It grieves my heart, not only that I know so little, but it is apparent in our day and age that there are so many professing Christians who do know, do not love Christ supremely. It's not uncommon, dearly beloved, but a work of grace that as one grows, as Peter says in First Peter or Second Peter three, as one grows in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not uncommon to experience a deeper consciousness of one's own insufficiency and unworthiness of such divine grace and knowledge. The closer we draw to Christ and the more exalted He is, the more we're humbled by our unworthiness and insufficiency. Paul said in Philippians that he could only follow after in hopes of attaining, seizing, possessing. He could only follow after that which also he was apprehended of Christ Jesus. He followed after as though his apprehension of Christ which seized him, though genuine and complete, could only be morally, more fully realized by him as he followed after, reached forth, pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Christ had apprehended him, yet he could only follow after. As though he obtained it, yet it was never obtainable. As though it created in him a constant hunger for the things of Christ. The more he learned of Christ, the more he wanted Christ. And beloved, that is the true work of grace in a child of God's heart. The more Christ reveals of himself, the more hungry we are for him. We long to know more of his love and his mercy and his compassion, his long suffering. His patience, His person. It seems to me, replied Robert Dale, after 40 years of preaching, after 40 years, it seems to me, he said, sometimes that I am only just beginning to catch a glimpse of the glory and power of the redemption which God has wrought for us through the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. Just a glimpse after 40 years. And it was Moses who after 120 years of seeing the power and glory of God like none other, that would humbly confess on the border of Canaan, O Lord God, Thou hast begun to show Thy servant Thy greatness and Thy mighty hand. Thou hast begun after 120 years. 
Why is it that Christians then today appear to be so content and satisfied with their nominal Christianity, with a superficial understanding of Christ, with going merely through the motions of Christianity, reading a little scripture, praying a little bit, and visiting church occasionally? Where is that burning love and desire for Christ? Beloved, eternity itself will not be long enough to sing His praises. Nor long enough to learn all there is about God. We'll never find an end to God. And our praises shall never end. And it's with such humble thoughts that I wish to begin this morning's message For within these verses we have a divine truth concerning Christ which is most amazing and most glorious. Matthew chapter 9 verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. There lies within these words a twofold wonder. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. A twofold wonder which is best described by the old hymnist which we just sung beneath the cross. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Christ looks on the multitude of sinners and has moved with compassion. It's an amazing text. An amazing truth. Which of these two wonders amaze us most? That Christ, the Son of God, is moved with compassion? Or that which moved Him to such compassion, namely the multitude? Let us ponder, let us consider, let us wonder at who it is that is moved with compassion on the multitude of sinners. Let us ponder and wonder who it is that is moved with such compassion on the multitude. Namely, Christ, the very Son of God. It's no mortal man nor an angel from heaven, but he who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. God manifested in the flesh. He whose name is Wonderful and Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of His person. Shall I go on? That's who is moved with compassion. That's an amazing thing. That God Himself would be moved with compassion when He looks upon sinners. That is an amazing, overwhelming truth which should overwhelm our hearts and our souls and ravish our affections for Christ. That God would look upon me with compassion and not wrath and judgment and condemnation, but with compassion. He it is that is moved with compassion, yet not on the worthy, nor the wise, nor the mighty, nor the noble, nor the righteous, but on the multitudes. The foolish, the weak, the sinful, the depraved, the unworthy. 
sheep that are scattered and without a shepherd. And it's not because of their physical needs. And pay very close attention to me. It's not because of their physical needs or ailments. But it's because they're alienated from God. They have no standing before God. No legal right to stand before God. They're separated from God. They're at enmity with God. That same God that shows them compassion. This is amazing. This is amazing when you contemplate it and think about it. I've been preaching for over 35 years and I'm truly more amazed with this than I ever was before. And it's like there's no end to it. There's no end in sight to this amazing love of God which is beyond our imagination. That God, whom we offended, we're at enmities with, we're sinners, we transgressed against. He looks upon the multitude. This is God in the flesh and He's moved with compassion. The offended God looks upon the offending sinner and is moved with compassion. Not wrath, nor revenge, but with compassion. That's an amazing thought. He had every right to look upon them with disdain and wrath and revenge. For it is they, it is we who sinned against Him. We are the offending. And yet He looks upon the multitudes. The God of heaven and earth manifested in flesh. Listen to the words of God. Is it any wonder George Whitfield could hardly preach on the things of Christ without weeping? Oh, beloved, do you know something of this wonderful love and compassion of Christ? Have you been made the object of His love and forgiveness? How is your standing with God? He has compassion not because of their physical needs, but because of their spiritual Two wonders, I confess, <laughs> the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Compassion, not unlike the love, mercy, and grace of God, of which all flow together. Compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate it. Let me give that to you again. This is compassion. A sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate that stress. That's compassion. He was moved with this compassion on the multitude. Beloved, many there be who find difficulty with this divine truth. Believing that such a thing makes God appear to be weak or vulnerable. Emotionally wounded. That's not God. Oh, 
to leave the word of God alone. It said he was moved with compassion. The psalmist in Psalm 86, even the 86 even declared that the Lord is, God is full of compassion. Not just compassionate, but he's full of this compassion. He said he's full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. It doesn't make God vulnerable or weak. God has the sovereign right to have mercy on whom he would have mercy and have compassion on whom he would have compassion. Who are you to say God has no right to have compassion? Oh, I sicken of the theologians today who try to describe God and put him in their little box of theology and say that God can and can't do things. If God wants to say he has compassion on the multitudes, if God wants to say he loves the world, that he gave his only begotten son, then let God be God and every man a liar. <laughs> I can't reconcile those things. That's because you're finite and never will. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and this love was manifested in Christ walking amongst men and showing compassion toward the multitudes. <laughs> oh, beloved, what a glorious God we have. Look back over in Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. <laughs> It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Listen to that. Let it sink deeply in. It's the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. We deserve to be consumed because of our iniquities and our sins. We deserve it. God would be just in consuming us. But his mercies, his mercies, keep that from happening. Why? Because his compassions fail not. The Lord's, it is the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Why? Because his compassions, his pity, his consciousness of our distress and his desire to alleviate us from it fail not remember those words because we're going to come back to that get ahead of myself we can have compassion on one another and we ought to Paul says have compassion on one another as believers we should exercise this virtue amongst one another as believers we can have compassion on other people but we can't always alleviate their pain his fail not they are new every morning. Do you see the sad case of sinful man? God's compassions fail not, and yet we need them new every morning. Every morning we need a fresh reminder, a remembrance of his compassion. Every morning we're in need of his compassion. They're new. I like that. I like how the Holy Spirit pins that down. They're new every morning. It's like a refreshment. It's like they're brand new every day. It's like yesterday's compassion is nothing like today's. They're all new. This is God. They're new. You see how God is so great and magnificent. We can never find an end to God. And yet so many Christians live as though they found an end to God and Christianity. 
They're new every morning. They're new every morning. Every morning we rise up. Every morning God gives us breath to breathe and allows our heart to pump blood through our body. Every morning we rise from our beds. Every morning it's the compassion of God that is new. Like I said, we might have compassion on those who suffer. And though we would desire nothing better than to help, even alleviate them of such sufferings, we cannot of ourselves do that. We're limited. We have not the power or ability to alleviate someone else's sufferings. Yet God's compassion, the prophet says, fails not. I have been saved by His grace for over 40 years. And I'm telling you, there's been times in my life, as well as I'm sure in yours, where I was suffering tremendously. And nobody could alleviate that pain. It was a pain beyond any human comfort. Yet God's compassion never failed. Reached with inside the depths of my broken heart and healed my heart. It was new every morning. And Christ looks upon the multitudes that are lost without God. He looks upon you this morning as a sinner lost and undone at enmity with God, and He has compassion on you. He pities you. And He desires to alleviate the pain of your sin and sorrow. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care what theologian would deny or reject that. Interest me not at all. He had compassion on the multitude. His compassions fail not. It never lacks. It never disappoints. It's always sufficient. And it's always in abundance. And when God heals a heart, let me tell you something. He heals a heart like none other. He alone has the sovereign power to alleviate our suffering. How did his compassions alleviate our sufferings? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is how Christ alleviates our sufferings. Isaiah 53. And allow me the liberty to read from verse 4 to the end, and listen closely to the Word of God. Surely He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You hear his compassion. You see it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare this generation? For he was cut off out of the land of living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Watch this. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Do you hear that? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He took our sins and our sorrows, our griefs. He laid them upon Christ. And when the Father seen the travail of his soul as a woman in birth, it says that he was satisfied. Do you know Christ has bore every grief and every sorrow that you and I as his children shall ever experience and live? In this present life, he's borne them all. What an amazing salvation we have in Christ. And sinner friend, this is the same Christ that has compassion on you. Why? Why do people not come to Christ? Oh, I know the theological answer, but I ask the question to the sinner, why do you not come to Christ? Like George Whitfield, when they claimed he wept too much, he said, shall I not weep for you when you won't weep for yourself? That you reject the great mercy and grace of God? Let me weep in your stead. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I like divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's, that's how Christ's compassion alleviated our grief and our sorrow. Christ not only sees the multitudes but the Bible says he's moved with compassion for them, for he is not only conscious and aware of their distress without God, but he alone is able and willing to fully alleviate their sufferings by the sacrifice of himself. I believe Martin Luther said it best when he said, every man has a conscience. If he would just listen to the conscience that God gave him, he said they would flee to Christ. Lord, remember me. Regard me. Care for me. Save me. Have compassion on me. Not remember me as a person, the thief meant. He said, but Lord, remember me. Regard, care, and save me. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy 
kingdom. Remember me. Regard me. Care for me. Have pity on me. When you come into thy kingdom, he sought not restitution or acquittal, but compassion. I hang justly here for my sins. I'm condemned. I'm guilty. I seek not restitution which I deserve not. I seek not acquittal for which I deserve not. I seek only thy compassion. Lord, remember me. Might that be the cry of someone this morning who hears this message, the same cry from the deepest of your heart. Lord, remember me. Show pity, compassion on this poor wretched sinner and save me. He was moved with compassion. There is absolutely no merit of any kind in this compassion. For it's Christ from which such compassion flows. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. The multitude, Christ said, are like sheep scattered and without a shepherd, ignorant, lost and blind. They're without God. Again, it wasn't their physical needs. It wasn't their physical ailments. He had compassion on them because they were lost sheep, without a shepherd, without God. You say that makes God vulnerable. Christ was man as well as God. Christ could stand at the graveside of a loved one and weep. What God did through Christ to save sinners is beyond our farthest imagination and deserves our highest praise as well as our greatest love that we can give Him. He gave us everything. He gave us His only begotten Son. He led Him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God has the sovereign right to be compassionate upon sinners. Who is man to tell Him He does not have the right? It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. If you should die without Christ on this very day, you will surely be consumed. But it will not be because you did not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be because you ignored and rejected it. And you will be consumed. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. He was moved with compassion. Yet look back in Matthew chapter 9 once again. Let me close this with a earnest exhortation from Christ himself.
to his disciples and the church concerning his compassion for the multitude. Nine, chapter 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. What did he do? Then said he unto his disciples, listen to me, and said he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Four quick things. He says the harvest is truly plenteous. There's many. He told his disciples in John chapter 4, lift up your eyes and look upon the harvest. It's white. The harvest is plenteous. Two, but he said the laborers are few. Three, he said it's only by praying to the Lord of harvest. It's by divine intervention. It's by prayer. It's by intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is what he's saying. Intercede to the Lord of the harvest. Why? That he would send forth laborers. Not that they would go of their own accord, but that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Beloved, laborers signify the difficulty and hardships of the work. Because in spite of the labor being for the eternal good of men's souls, and that's what it is, Christ came down to save sinners, and how was he treated? The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. If they've hated and despised Christ, so will they hate and despise us for Christ's sake. It's laborers he speaks of, not merely anybody. And it's not laborers of their own choice. It's laborers that God the Father, the Lord of the harvest, sends forth. Pray that He send forth laborers. I believe one of the problems we have today amongst many churches and schools is that men are calling themselves and that's one of the problems. Pray ye the Lord of harvest. And he send forth labors. <coughs> what are those labors to do? Well, they're to follow his example. We're called to follow and labor in his footsteps. Let me let Paul explain. He said in Corinthians, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to it. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. Plead with you. Oh, I don't believe in presenting a gospel or inviting sinners. What Bible are you reading? As though God did beseech you by us, <coughs> Lord of the harvest and His labors, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. 
Let me read these words again and listen closely. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ stead, be ye reconciled to God. And he encourages them with these following words. Be reconciled to God. Why? Compassion. Listen. For he hath made him to be sin for you, for us, who knew no sin. He didn't know sin. But God the Father made him to be sin for you, for me that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. There's the alleviating of our suffering. He made Him to be sin. He bore the punishment. He bore the shame. He bore the condemnation. That you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He alleviates our suffering by His sacrifice. Beloved, could there be a greater message that Christ would entrust us under his church. Christ was their only hope. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Beloved, there's an absence today in many churches not an absence of ceremonies or entertainment, not an absence of so-called scholars and theologians, but there's an absence of the presence of God, an absence of the reality of Christ, and an absence of the working of the Spirit of God. Is it because we have left off praying to the Lord of Harvest that he sent forth labors. These are not men that call themselves, but these are men that God thrust out into his harvest. That's what sent forth means. God thrust them out, thrust them out. He thrust them out. Church history is filled of men like that. George Whitfield, Hal Harris, John Bunyan, John Gill, John Owens. I can go on and on. God thrust them out in the world. They're not called of their own. God thrust them out in the harvest. Whitfield's cry was, God, send us Christ-felt preachers. John Brown, and I'll close with this quote, very, very important. In speaking to regards of the preacher and the church, he says, and I quote, and he who realizes the living place which preaching in its most vital forms, has ever taken in the spiritual life of the church, will need no further assurance of its great importance. He will not fail to note that the preacher's message and the church's spiritual condition have risen or fallen together. Life has gone out of the preacher. It is not long before it has gone out of the church also. On the other hand, when there has been a revived message of life on the preacher's lips, there comes as a consequence a revived condition 
in the church, end of quote. That's why churches are exhorted to pray for their preachers and pastors. That God would give him life to preach Christ so that we all might live unto Christ. He was moved with compassion. I pray you'd hear those words this morning if you know not Christ. Because if you depart from this life without Christ, there is no more compassion to be had. Your destiny, eternal destiny, is sealed. You'll be consumed with no compassion and no pity. And your condemnation will be even the greater because you sat under the preaching and you heard the word of God and you rejected, denied it. Why do you linger? Why do you wait? Call on Christ while it is today. Call on him while he is near, the Bible says. For there might come a time when you will not hear his voice of compassion. And you'll be doomed for eternity without Christ. Oh, may God be gracious to you. And child of God, may we be revived in our hearts. And may Christ be supremely loved. And may we know something of his mercies and compassion that are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray our Heavenly Father.